Welcome to the This Week in Common Sense, Dr. Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Vericola. I'm helping Paul today wrap up the big stories of the week that have appeared on thisiscommonsense.org. Paul Jacob has been writing commentary on thisiscommonsense.org since 1999. This week's efforts begin on Monday with unmasking the mask debate. On Tuesday, the title is Catastrophic Calamity the Debt. On Wednesday, it's the Age of Octogenarians. On Thursday, the day we're recording this podcast, Stossel sues Facebook, and set to go on Friday as Biden blames business. This podcast, This Week in Common Sense, will appear online for your listening pleasure on Friday. On Saturday, the video version will appear on YouTube, and you can see it all at thisiscommonsense.org, listen to it all at thisiscommonsense.org, and access and print the PDFs of each column at thisiscommonsense.org. So, Paul, where do we begin? We start the, the week with mask arguments. Yeah. I argued with all kinds of people, people I like very much. So you got a lot of feedback on Facebook? Yes, yes. So maybe we should talk about that. Well, sure. It's, uh, I think the, the mask uh, situation or debacle or mandates or whatever, uh, you know, we, we at Common Sense have uh, early on, it seems like it was February before they, when they were still poo-pooing, you know, the idea of wearing masks. And, and you know, I'd just been recently to Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and you see a decent number of people wearing masks, you know, not, not half or a third or a fourth even, but, you know, one of 10 people maybe. And, and, uh, and of course, I think it makes some sense to wear masks for, you know, if you're under the weather and, but you need to go outside and you don't think you're contagious enough with any, you know, typhoid or anything, and you might want to wear masks just to make it to where it's a little safer for other people. Um, the question has always been, how is this spread? How's COVID-19 spreading? And, you know, how do we stop it from spreading? And, and it seems to me early on, we got a lot of BS. I mean, they just kind of lied to us, Fauci being one. And Fauci kind of laughed it off as, uh, you know, well, we were trying to protect masks and so on. So somehow they would lie to us. So we wouldn't try to get the N95 mask that we couldn't get anyway um, and make it to where, you know, hospital people couldn't get them. When in a real crisis, you, you have to have some level of trust. And he should have come out and said, look, we need these masks for people on the front lines. Do your duty as a decent human being and do not grab up these N95 masks. Now, let's get as many of the other masks around everybody as we can. And, and, and even admit at that time, we don't know if this is going to work very well. Because if it's, if it's spread by big droplets, as we mentioned in this story, and we're in this story, James Agresti, uh, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, wrote a piece for, for Heartland. And he's done a lot of kind of compiling and looking at different studies of mask wearing. And the title of the piece is Unmasking the Mask the Debate. But he comes out and says, look, there's, you know, there, there's very little evidence that the masks are very effective. And I think we've pointed out in previous commentaries 
that if you look at the, you know, track kind of the big board of how many infections and when mask mandates went into effect and so on, it just doesn't correlate with, you know, it's not like mask mandate goes into effect, people put on masks in large numbers, and I think people are putting on masks. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always the people that don't get it that you got to put it above your nose. You know, you got to put it up here instead of just over your lip. But I love you anyway. You're, I'm sure you're great people. Uh, but but other, you know, there's a lot of people wearing masks, and yet the curve doesn't curve. I mean, it continues to go up. Where it goes down, it goes back up. It goes down. It it behaves like a virus does, not like a virus that's being you know, squelched by mask wearing. And, um, and so, you know, I'm awfully skeptical. I think, I think I'm to say that I'm, I wouldn't even say you're skeptical, Tim, because you would disagree with me. Where, where are you on, on mass? Well, you know, when we started out this whole emprise, I used a mask before any requirement. And I used masks. I did as well. And at that time, I had forgotten anything I'd ever learned about masks. I mean, I had read stories about the uh, 1918 flu, right? The big epidemic that occurred. The Spanish flu. Those darn Spaniards. Yeah, which didn't have much to do with Spain. But, <laughs> had nothing uh, to do really with yeah, from Spain. What I, from what I could tell. But uh, they did try masks in a lot of places in the United States. And it was especially odiously totalitarian in San Francisco, where a policeman shot someone who wouldn't wear a mask. So they got pretty nasty, but there was very little evidence that the mask really worked. And that was understood by scholars at the time and, and scholars later. And that's one of the reasons that uh, Fauci was deprecating mask wearing is that there isn't much evidence that common people wearing masks does any good. It was certainly not from that epidemic. It seems to me that it's more clear, even though I feel like they've gone to great pains not to make it clear to people. But early on, there was wash everything and wipe your hands down. And there was, you know, the distancing and everything else. But it seems pretty clear that this is an aerosol type thing. It's droplets, it's in the air. And there can be aerosol, aerosol, that's the right way to say it, type transmission of stuff where you're talking about large and not really large, you can't see them, they're microscopic, but they're larger than others that are also microscopic, but they're maybe, let's say, microscopic to the microscopic. And this appears to be small enough that it's going through the mass and that you'd be better to be unmasked, close together, outside, where then you would be sitting in a room for 30 minutes with everybody masked because the air would go through and, but no one's ever said that. I've never heard that. I've never read it in the newspaper. It's just talking to real people in real life that you might come to that conclusion, but that's kind of my conclusion. And I'm sure that there are newspaper articles that have discussed it, but my God, you can't read everything. It does seem like there is so much time taken up with, here's what you need to do because science said so that they don't have much time to explain what people who are actually doing some sort of scientific inquiry are finding out. And people who are actually engaged in fighting this COVID-19 are actually learning. It's a terrible situation. And of course, 
we'll get to a you know another script we talked about in this one that of course we have major communication platforms in our society that have decided the best way to deal with a new pandemic is to basically enforce a censorship, a censorship that I don't think even the CDC and the the World Health Organization, who, that somehow, I don't think that they've said, hey, anyone who disagrees with us should be shut down. But YouTube, many, many months early on in this thing, said that anything that disagreed with with WHO's proclamations, which are complete bull, but whether they, even if they were wonderful and right, 98 point whatever, 3% of the time, they'd still be wrong some. And they ought not to be enforced as if you can't disagree with something. And that's what's happening. It's what's been happening with the masks, with vaccine stuff. And look, some of it is some of the things that people say are Looney Tunes. We can all agree on that. Where I'm never going to agree is that we have a right to decide an official right and wrong on medicine, on mechanics, on every subject under the sun. And if you disagree, you will shut up because otherwise you will be shut down. Or, you know, at a certain point, if you get, you know, get to China or you get to the future, you know, dystopia, worse. So we're not just having a debate about medicine. We're not having a debate about medicine because we can't have a debate about medicine because we have to first have a debate about what the hell happened to our First Amendment rights. Right. And I think that what really happened was political, is that what we have is that the technocrats, the cognitive elite, the people who you know inhabit most of the halls of uh, government and who you know graduate from college and go on to illustrious careers, those people are really scared of people who voted for Trump. And Trump got 10 million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. And that really is scary to them because they realize they could lose the grasp on what they really do have. They have, a, they have a stranglehold on the society because they do hold the commanding heights of government and the culture and the academic world and media and everything like that. And they're now cracking down through social media to sock in that one. And it's problematic because people are realizing what they're doing. And they realize also that there is you know, a good 60, 70 million people who really oppose that. That this is a class struggle would almost be laughable. Oh, what are you talking about, Tim? Except that their behavior proves, in essence, that it's a class struggle because you see this immediate marriage of big media, big tech, the deep state, all the things we've been talking about. You see people like Glenn Greenwald, who's, who reports on some of these things and is way on the left, but is, is viewed as some right winger by half of these folks because somehow he can still see. And he says, wait a second, what you're doing is outrageous. This isn't liberal. It's, it may be progressive in the ugliest sense of that word, but it's, it's certainly not liberal. Also, I have a real complaint and a big complaint, and probably my most important thought on masks is the psychological effect of mask wearing. I think the reason they pushed masks was not because they work. The elites pushed masks because they're dehumanizing. 
when you cover your face, you enter a different kind of society. And masks have been used for thousands of years to dehumanize the people. You know, it's been used in rituals, shamanistic. It's what you wear to war. There's all these things you do, so it's easier to. It's like the hood. The hood they've put on people, and the you know the war on terrorism is when the U.S. first seemed to use those hoods. Why did the Ku Klux Klan wear hoods? So that, so right. they could do things to people that they wouldn't otherwise do. There is a law in Virginia where I live, that you cannot wear a mask. It is against the law. Now, I happen to think it's an unconstitutional law. And on, on, on Halloween, there have been no mass arrests or anything. But there's a law that you cannot wear a mask. And of course, there's the bank robbers used to wear masks. And, the, sure. and, and so it, it, there is a problem. And I don't, you know, I think that there's a reason to wear masks sometimes to these medical masks. And so I, I like to go, I mean, you know, they may have all kinds of evil intent, but it may just be, hey, we think this is good. And we think what we think ought to be forced down everybody's throats. So everyone must wear masks because especially so many of the people on TV with the condescending tone about masks, uh, and I'm just talking about talking heads and people who work for, you know, ABC affiliate or whoever. And Nancy Pelosi too. Yes, and the politicians and 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 big big government science in America with Fauci on down, all poo-pooed the mask, and then immediately, oh, how could you not wear a mask? It's proven science, and that's you know the other casualty in all this is science because. In a lot of things, like you, know, you always hear Americans scored, you know, 183rd nation in the geography test or some other test. And you think, oh, how come we're so dumb? Um, but here's, here's a subject in which we could be awfully dumb because we hear such dumb things all the time. I still think that the psychological effect is society-wide. The reason we've embraced a stupid policy, I think it's actually insane, to immunize everybody during a pandemic with a leaky vaccine or three leaky vaccines. This is a disastrous idea. The man who invented mRNA technology says it's a horrible idea. And yet it's going through. And the reason we're doing this and doing it the way we're doing it is partly because people panicked because they've been forced to wear masks for a number of months. And that induced a kind of collective psychosis of madness of crowds. And that put everybody in this weird footing, and I think they're panicking, and they're panicking on a level they never would if they hadn't worn the masks. It's interesting you say that because we are seeing more incidents in schools of violence and bad behavior. We are seeing more incidents on planes. Of course, I kind of am thinking that's been a tinderbox for a long time, because when you put people in tiny spaces and you torture them, that's not a, it's just not a good way to live your life. So that's, you know, that's a real problem. And people are jerks. And so, you know, that's when they're going to be their jerkiest. And we see the, there was a big head in the post last week, uh, maybe it was even this week, that said something about murder rate way up in 2020. And of course, you know, I'm thinking that's not even new. I mean, why is that the top story? But I guess they got finally gotten the statistics all compiled or whatever. But it's not a surprise to people, I think. Early on in this, there were some people 
a friend of mine, Eric O'Keefe in Wisconsin, who's been involved with Wisconsin Club for Growth and was a, a big term limits guy uh, back in the day. He came out and talked about how we need to guard against the government telling us we can't have social interaction. Our society, you know, the First Amendment, there's a right to free association. They didn't just go, hey, we need a few more words. Anyone got some? I mean, this is important. This is the basis of our society and civilization and free civilization instead of some sort of totalitarian type place. It was interesting because I've been surprised by how fearful everyone has been in Michigan, for instance, Whitmer, Governor Whitmer, so many of her restrictions were so not thoughtful, designed to get somebody. You kind of had a sense, you know, the, the canoe could go out on the lake, but the party barge couldn't. You know, if you're going to have any fun, no, answer is no. But people supported that to some degree. Some people ascribed Newsom's winning California to the fact that the Delta variant got going and people got scared again and we're all going to die and so on. And people feed off of this some. We've for years been looking for, you know, how can the whole world just be blown up in some nuclear war or die later in nuclear winter or get hit by an asteroid? Those aren't even the crazy things. Those are the things that actually happen. You know, I think there is this, this tendency among people to get mass hysteria kind of and i think that is partly what what is going on and i think people in power have kind of a natural tendency to like it well sure and and not and and not because they're evil i mean they may they may be evil i'm not saying they're not but i'm just saying they wouldn't have to be evil you are all of a sudden more important and one of the problems in Washington, and I've, I've felt this personally, I've seen it in other people, good people doing great work. You get in your head that you're doing what you're doing is so important. What you're saying is saving lives. And so anyone who disagrees with you is killing people. They're killing people if they don't agree with you. And you see that in some of the mess debates and the vaccines and other things. And of course, this is over a disease that, what, 700,000 Americans have died from almost? Um, and of course, those numbers may be wildly inflated. But let's say that 100,000 had died of COVID. Oh, well, that, you know, that's a terrible thing. So it's, I mean, you see how these things happen and you see how people can like it who are in positions of power. And it's, it's a huge problem. You can also see how it's kind of a 360 degree problem. It's not just the problem of debating the right medicine. It's the problem of the government stopping the debate through oftentimes private means. Throughout all of this, as we've written several times, the White House is talking to Facebook and others, and, and how can we stop posts that say the wrong things? That's not what our government's supposed to do. That's not the First Amendment. And you can argue about private companies doing what private companies want to do. The government being involved in the way they are involved is not in line with the First Amendment. And that's, it, it's clear. And you see also the degree to which it can spiral out of control. Peter Daszak, 
who's the Echo Health Alliance. That's the group that got the money from the National Institute for Health. And they got the money. Then they gave the money to the Wuhan lab. And this guy has turned up like a bad penny everywhere. He's the guy who did the Lancet letter saying how it's a big conspiracy theory that it could come from the Wuhan lab, that COVID-19 could. That was basically then shut down and smushed on social media. Let's not, this shouldn't be talked about because it's all a big conspiracy theory. When he had a complete self-interest in saying that, even though he denied that in his representation to the Lancet, you see Fauci involved in spinning that story. You see the media playing along. Oh, nobody has to tell them twice. They know what side our team is on and they're marching along. And this was literally our big government science, our media running cover for ultimately the CCP in China, because that's who we don't know whether they had a leak in, in the lab or what. We don't know anything, really, because China's got all the information and China has both lied. We know they lied. It's obvious they lied. They said something and it was clear they knew at the time they said it. It wasn't true. That's a lie. And they've blocked any study of it and any other information coming out. And yet for a year, the campaign year, China could not be blamed by our anti-Trump media. I'm not blaming them for being anti-Trump. I mean, I, I, they were pro-Biden. So, I mean, they were they were worse than, you know, than Trump by a long shot. But th that's not the point. The point is, that's the degree they were willing to cover up for a genocidal regime. And of course, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times has all taken money from that same genocidal regime. I haven't seen in, in our current uh, political environment, I haven't seen the China Daily inserts in the Washington Post uh, in the last couple of years. So maybe that's the thing of the past. But anyway, go on a long tangent there. The fact that the battle is over any sort of robust debate is really scary. They've kind of pushed us down to the very foundations of whether we, whether the citizenry can, can do things, whether we have any knowledge to do anything. And of course, they'd like to use this crisis to say that, no, you can't do anything because now all the freedoms that we've talked about for hundreds of years, they don't count anymore. They don't matter. People will die if we don't give up all those freedoms. And I think if you step back and take a breath of fresh air, you look and realize as terrible things that have happened to the human race, this pandemic isn't in the list of the top 20. And that our reaction to it has been far worse than COVID-19 itself. I'm not some COVID-19 denier. I've had it. It was a mild case, but I know other people who've had it. I know people who have died who've had it that I care about very much. This isn't a, oh, it's no big deal, some macho flash type thing. This is, if you don't believe, if, if you say anything about science, but you do not want a robust system of testing things and alternative 
theories and people being able to speak freely and debate, then you don't know what science is all about. You know, science has never been very political, but it is in this very sense, in the very sense that science demands free speech. That's the whole point. I, I had never really thought about that, but you know, as much as you always think of science as not being political, it is political in the sense that it believes in constant questions and study and testing, and that requires a certain level of freedom of speech. Well, that's the logic of liberty, according to Michael Polanyi, book by that title. Uh, and that is the point, is that freedom of speech and free debate and open society are mirrored in science. And that's one of the cases for science and the case for freedom, is that both back each other up. But what we have now is that most science that's not subsidized by corporations is subsidized by government. Most of the science is done by government. I call it a monopsonistic science, is there's one buyer. And when you have one buyer, they can call the tune, especially if they've been captured by an ideology or a clique or a cult. And I think we, the class element comes in here again, because what we have is that the cognitive elite, which has gone through all the colleges and has many perquisites that come from their going through the sorting machine of public schools, private schools, and colleges, they have huge advantages over normal people. And they now hate the people that, well, don't really trust them. And I think that the reason not to trust them is very high because I think they're behaving like cults. And I think that in some ways, they so hated Trump because they wanted to smear the American people with having elected Trump, even though he got less than a majority of the popular vote. But the way our elections worked legitimately, he won the vote. And they wanted to smear the American people with that. Now, I think there's some things that Donald Trump did that are wonderful. I mean, there's some things Donald Trump did that are horrifically bad. I think compared to others, I don't think he's such a, a terrible president. I dislike most his behavior from the election of 2020 to leaving office. Because I think that that is so, how you behave at that point is so critical and so important. And so I have not let, I have not forgiven him for that. I think he was bad from the beginning of COVID on. I think that he was taken over by Fauci, that he should have resisted Fauci. I think he should have fired Fauci right away. I mean, I believe there's evidence for it very, very quickly. And he was not proactive and he did not tell us to be courageous. He told us to wait for a vaccine basically. And that's, I think was very bad for everybody. Yeah. I come to believe that as, as even worse than his horrible post-election waffling and, and fiddle farting around. I mean, that was all nonsense. You're right. That was really quite bad. But I think his handling of COVID turns out to be really, really, really bad. Well, and that's what, that's what COVID beat him. I mean, that's a, if you looked at polling all through that year, that was the, the concern about COVID and the concern about him, him being able to do it. But his problem is that he wants to be a savior. He wants to be saving the people, right? He wants to be the Messiah. So how does he do that? 
he doesn't want to be Churchill. He doesn't want to, you know, inspire the people to create his path. <laughs> Churchill got thrown out of office right after the World War II ended, by the way. Right, so. I know. So it's yeah. an interesting parallel, but he didn't want to be that. He wanted to be someone who saves the, the masses. And so he went for this easy out. And I think that makes, it, makes him a progressive. And I think he was politically in all kinds of ways. But the, the point I wanted to jump back to that I didn't quite make is that he, I think the establishment, to the degree that people had to hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump, to the degree that people who were deeply, deeply offended by things he had said or done felt like he was the best chance for the country. And in some cases, by far the best chance. I, mean, I know people who despised the personality Donald Trump, who thought it was absolutely critical that he beat Hillary Clinton. And, and, and same with Biden. I know that they didn't look at it like, oh, I don't care what some guy says, or, you know, I mean, it, it, all the kind of garbage that was thrown on people who supported Donald Trump, in the same way that people would throw garbage on people who supported Bill Clinton, and very few people who supported Bill Clinton supported him because, hey, I want, I want kind of a, a crazy partying, uh, you know, skirt chasing president right at the moment. But they liked other things about him. And so anyway, the real person or not person, but group that deserves to be smeared to the degree that people were upset enough with the establishment to vote for Donald Trump. My late father, who never in his life would act like Donald Trump acts, never in his life. He was a big fan of Donald Trump running for president. Never a big fan of Donald Trump. It wasn't like through the years, oh, I always liked Donald Trump. He never really liked Donald Trump. He became convinced, he told me. I one time said, I said, you know, daddy said some things that, I mean, I know you don't like that. Oh, no, no. But he said, Paul, he's the only guy, and they got 17 people running. He's the only guy who'll do anything different. And the establishment is so corrupt. He's the only one who might have the ability to take them on. I went once jokingly in a, in a book uh, about different libertarians. I joked that uh, uh, my dad told me something. I said it was the only time he was ever right. And of course, the joke was, my dad had this ability, as I think a lot of the dads do, of being wrong immediately, a lot, and then years later, damn, being correct, after all. <laughs> so here was a case in which I wasn't a teenager realizing my dad was right, after all. I was, a, I was an old man realizing, once again, my dad saw something that made sense. And I see this all the time with people who aren't, you know, people see things in different ways. And, and so, you know, their, their big issue may be something totally different than your big issue. And so they're going to forgive some politician on all kinds of things because on that core issue that they've seen people's lives be hurt or helped or something, this person's good or they think they're good. That's usually the problem in Congress is they're not really any good on that issue. They just have a speech that mentions that issue. They don't really do anything about it. But I digress. 
we're quite a ways away from what you wrote about on Monday. Yes. Well, I want to connect one that people should go uh, read, Stossel Sue's Facebook, because it's about the same general subject, which is people trying to shut down speech. John Stossel, who I think is a superstar, has done so many great things in the media to talk about freedom and how it works better than slavery and drudgery and so on. We have talked so often about Facebook and YouTube and these platforms that in essence set up rules and invite you to bring your stuff in and so on and then seem to violate their own rules to police your stuff in some way that doesn't make any sense. And then their stated reasons for policing it this way don't work because they're not policing other people that way. And it just happens again and again and again. You know, people are talking about section, what is it, 230, the, you know, that the government ought to write different rules about because they have kind of an antitrust exemption or something. And, and uh, it's not my strong suit, but it's, it's one of those things where to me, it's always seemed like the real problem is that they've kind of defrauded everybody. They've invited people in under certain rules and then they're not living up to those rules. And I think they should be held to that. And, uh, and I'm hopeful Stossel in his lawsuit, this is a lawsuit asking for $2 million. And as we mentioned in the piece, uh, one fellow who's, who's smart said, the problem with this lawsuit is it needs a lot more zeros to get Facebook's attention. But they basically smeared Stossel by saying, hey, that what he had said was partially untrue and didn't have context and then couldn't explain, hey, here's, here's why we're saying that. And I've seen that again and again when they went after uh, not only Rand Paul, but his father, Ron Paul, on some issues on YouTube and on Facebook, particularly with Ron Paul, they never came back and said what it was and what it violated. And they also said there had been recurring violations. And it turns out it was the first time they had ever said that he had violated anything. Because you're a private company, uh, I should re remind my liberal friends, that my progressive friends, that because you're a private company doesn't mean you get to defraud people. That isn't how it works. And, and so I'm, I'm thrilled by this lawsuit. Invite people to go there. And there are links to more about that lawsuit. One of the, the pieces this week that I kept thinking about was the piece about Pat Toomey. I was going to say Pat Toomey. There's a, another guy I know named Pat Toomey. But Pat Toomey, who is the retiring in 2022 uh, U.S. Senator Republican from Pennsylvania, which is not, not a usual thing to have a Republican senator from Pennsylvania these days. So it's nice to have. He's retiring. He's been a big term limits guy. But this is not about term limits, this piece. It's called Catastrophic Calamity, the Debt. And what interested me about this uh, piece, and the reason I decided to write it was, I'm watching uh, Jake Tapper's State of the Union, which I usually don't get a chance to catch, but I, I caught it. And he's talking about the you know calamity of the uh, uh, debt ceiling. And of course, as we're recording this now, the debt ceiling has been, it hasn't really been extended or anything, but they just passed a continuing resolution to fund the government and they'll worry about it later. But I had just read before I decided to turn on the tube uh, and, and dull my senses some, I had just read 
an editorial in the Washington Post about how the Republicans were risking, you know, the end of the world, basically, by not going along with, with raising the debt ceiling. And so Jake Tapper does that. Then he gets Pat Toomey on. And basically, Toomey stops him right away and he says, look, I'm, I'm not going to vote for any extension of the, of the debt ceiling tied to all this spending. I'm just not going to do it. And neither are other Republicans. And you know what? There's not going to be any calamity. And then he goes on to point out that the Democrats can pull up a bill and pass it anytime they like. They don't need any Republican votes. They want Republican votes. So it's basically they're looking for cover from Republicans. And then I remembered that editorial that I had read in the Washington Post and how at the end they ding the Republicans for not going along and providing the same, and they even used the same political cover. They say, direct quote, not giving the Democrats the political cover the Democrats gave them. And here is our nation's paper of record, arguably, the Washington Post, beating up on Republicans for not providing the political cover. Now, who are they providing cover for? The Democrats. Who are they providing cover from? Us. Yeah. And it's like, one, it tells you this whole thing is phony. It's phony baloney. If there's no crisis, it's all BS. It also tells you the media person, why didn't, if Jake Tapper would have said, what are you talking about? Absolutely, it will cause, uh, Mr. Senator Toomey, you can't mean that. That's not true. It's not true. No, he didn't argue. I mean, he argued other things to to kind of banter with, with Toomey. But he didn't say, no, you're lying. Because he knows that Toomey's right. How does he feel when he's reading the lead into this story? And is he, he's hyping it like it's some catastrophe in the, in the offing. And it, it's, it's complete crap. And what happens to your ability to like judge what is news and what's important and how to, how to state things and how to present things when you're constantly blowing up stuff that you know is complete BS. And of course, what doesn't get discussed is all this debt and spending and, and debt ceilings and everything. The bottom line of it is, I don't even know how much, we're 21 trillion or are we now 22 or 25 trillion? I, I've lost track. I can't count that high anymore. I think we're over 27. <laughs> I'm still, I've still got, I've got my trillions. I'm just counting them as fast as I can. But oh. I'll insert the correct number right after I say this. This is your post-production information insert. The debt is nearly 29 trillion as I speak. We ended the week with Biden blames business. I could say all kinds of things about Joe Biden from the fact that, you know, he makes statements on, you know, Afghanistan or on the vaccine or something. And then a week later is saying the opposite or it's found to be completely untrue. And, oh, well, you know, and there's all this spin, the, you know, the, the, 
generals this week testifying, seemed to testify that they told him all kinds of things that he told the press nobody had told him. There's a lot of different problems. But here is a basic kind of left-wing progressive nonsense problem. And that is that you can just spend all the money you want. You can just print it up and just drop ship it all over the country, wherever you want, as much as you want. And it's not going to cause any problem. And then when it's clear that you're mistaken, that when you do all this, prices start to go up because people have all these dollars and they're saying, well, I should buy something with all this money and, and maybe not go back to work. <laughs> and, and, and all of a sudden, inflation is starting to kick up and Biden says the problem is business. The gas prices are up because the oil companies are evil. Now, didn't Biden think the oil companies were evil last week and last month and last year and the year before that? And, and you know, the gas prices have gone up and down. So being evil doesn't seem to, to set them in a one-way direction. It's treated by the media as, you know, that's his argument. It's not ridiculed as a conspiracy theory, and that's what it is. He doesn't have any, if he had any evidence that they were colluding on prices, I guarantee you the Justice Department would be all over Exxon and, and the rest of the boys, but he doesn't. This is a conspiracy theory. And he said he had evidence. Yes, oh, that is right. He said he had evidence. Do you think that he, when he got back to the White House, the press people were going, look, we've gotten all these calls from the press saying they need that evidence on, on the prices going up and they shouldn't be. Yeah, it was all nonsense. And of course, you know, quoting Milton Friedman and Bruce Yandel, two good economists. So it's kind of nice there. But uh, one thing you didn't quote in this piece was what Biden and Pelosi and all the Democrats were saying about their current spending, which what was a 3.5 trillion, spe trillion spending package. That's quite a lot of money. Um, yes. They said it would have zero cost. She even put her fingers like this with a zero, like an OK sign which last year we were told was a sign of uh, white supremacy, by the way. Um, but uh, she even did that to zero cost. And This is red ink supremacy. This is the red ink supremacy. I, I don't know, understand how they could make it any sense out of it. I mean, zero cost? It's, she said it was paid for. Well, how is it paid for? Because they have, they have, I guarantee they have all kinds of phony ways you know, I remember being in debate as a high school student and you'd have to find some way, you had to come up with a plan to solve some problem. It was all kind of geared to get you to be a, a politician and to ruin the world. And to, yeah, anyway, but, uh, but you had to solve some problem and you had to come up with, with how you would fund it. And so you'd always, you know, you'd remove tax loopholes, which of course would hurt no one. And that would be this much, or you'd do this or that. And and waste, fraud, and abuse. And so you'd have some evidence, somebody somewhere said, this would save this much money. And you'd claim that. But in high school debate, this is kind of stupid. I mean, why, why do we do this? Because they have to know that this doesn't really fund anything. And so why don't the judges kind of go, well, you don't really have any funding. This is bullshit. <laughs> Excuse me. I begin more and more, and this keeps happening as I get older, 
to see that there's lots of the world that is just pretend. It's BS. It's not real. And every once in a while, you know, you run into a, a business maybe you work for where they don't seem to be on the up and up and they're not going to be around very long. And But most of the time you're doing stuff where you understand how it works and you, you feel like, okay, this makes sense. As I get older and older, it bothers me how much I think the world is just running on craziness. When the media pretends that the problem with inflation may be, and, and the president of the United States pretends it may be that, you know, the companies are just doing things. When there's every reason that you would see why there's going to be inflationary pressure, that we can't have a debate about mass without all kinds of craziness. It seems like our country is not, we're not serious about things. Like sometimes I think, you know, I think about us and, and China and you think about war over the Taiwan Strait between China and Taiwan and you think, my goodness, the U.S. hasn't really given a, it's been ambiguous whether we would defend Taiwan and so on. And people think, well, I don't know if we would do that. And yet the reality is we have signaled to everybody in Asia that we're going to do that. Everybody in Asia. And so we can pretend over here that we're not going to do that. But if we don't do it, then all of Asia just changes overnight. And then, of course, I think there are places like Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania where we have given a 100% guarantee that we will defend them. And boy, don't those countries wish they had 100 miles of Taiwan Strait in between them and Russia. And they don't. How are you going to actually do that? Are we going to actually defend there? And, and I think sometimes if I were president, I would want to kind of get all these together and get the American people to have some sense of, are we willing to do this or not? And where would we want to draw the line? And I've been arguing some on this podcast, not really much through commentaries, because it's a tough thing to do, I think, in a commentary, because we're usually playing off things. But I have been most of my life, pretty much all of my life, against and entangling alliances, not wanting to get sucked into the rest of the world's battles, not wanting to police the world. I still don't want to do any of those things except the first. I want an alliance because I see that realistically, a libertarian can argue, or just you don't have to be libertarian, but a non-interventionist could argue, we should get out of all the treaties, we should be completely non-interventionist. But if we said today, we're not going to intervene anywhere in the world, then you would see China invade Taiwan. And you would see Russia, I think, invade the Baltic countries. And you would see, you might see Russia invade Ukraine. You might see all kinds of things that it seems to me we could avoid and that we as individuals don't have much responsibility to avoid it. But as a country, we have, you know, we have to take some, maybe like Sandra Sprinter would disagree with me, but maybe we have to take some responsibility for what we've allowed our stupid politicians to tell everybody around the world we're going to do. 
but it seems to me we have said to everybody, we're going to defend you. We're going to do all these things. And we're not serious about doing it. I have gotten to a point where if you're a free country out there, I believe in an alliance of the free countries. I don't think we can allow free countries to get picked off. I think we ought to all stand together. I think it's the smart way to kind of draw a line and say, how do you, how do you create alliances that make sense? And that means that you don't find yourself in Iraq and you don't find yourself in Afghanistan because they're not free societies. And you really, you know, you really limit what you're going to do. But boy, does that create, I think, some upward pressure to say, if we were freer, we could be part of a freer society. I think a lot of people would look at it like the old Cold War. This is the free, you know, the free world. And the, and the problem with the Cold War wasn't the, you know, wasn't the, that it was the free world versus the slave states, because that's, that's how you'd want it to be. Uh, and the free world would win. That's good. Um, the problem was that the free world wasn't a free enough world and that the free world gave free passes to dictators to pretend that they were free just because they were part of the free world team, even though they weren't at all free. All across the political world, we are in la-la land. And the one place that I think people have started to wake up, including in political circles and foreign policy circles in the Biden administration, Trump administration, is the danger of China. But I think most Americans are still pretty clueless as to how big a threat it is and how completely enabled and not pushed back it has been. Well, I'm afraid that this is kind of moot because I think we might be at war with China right now. There's a possibility that that was an attack from Wuhan, that this is, uh, I know that some people find it absurd, the idea that it was a deliberate leak. But I don't think it's absurd because I think it was a low-grade, fairly low-grade disease that took off, takes off the old and the infirm. And that's something that I don't think Chinese rulers have any problem with among their own people or any other people. And also, when it's packaged in a psyop, a psychological operation, like we stumbled into at least, uh, it can destroy a nation. And Australia is now a horrible place. Australia is under lockdown. There are uh, whole provinces under lockdown. There are states, whatever they call them in Australia. And they have prison camps. We've talked about this before, but Australia is not a free country anymore. Australia is now fallen to communist ideas or totalitarian ideas of some sort. It's all over this goofy pandemic. And we have the same potential here. And we won't be a free country if, if we're locked down, if everybody's forced to take a vaccine and we're forced to wear a mask forever. That's not a free country. I would agree that when you start to mandate things like that, you lose your ability to claim you're a free country. It's difficult, I think, uh, for me to get a sense of how bad it is in Australia. And we've written about it. New Zealand has locked down over one, I think they had one death. The other part of it is that nobody tells the story about how terrible these lockdowns are. And we talked about it a little bit earlier in this episode. We didn't even get to how tough this is on kids, how tough this is on anybody who has any sort of mental health issues. This is like exacerbation, you know, sky high. You know, it's a huge problem. And as we've kind of said throughout this thing, 
in a free society, people have a tendency to step up. And I know there's always going to be the person who doesn't obey the rules. That's true in totalitarian societies. You know, they still have prisons. It's not like everyone goes, okay, you're, you're evil and ruthless enough. I'm going to be good no matter what. There's still some people who say, nah, I'm going to bend the rules. And so we can expect that everyone's not going to act perfectly. But the argument has always been, well, we have to mandate everything because somebody didn't do it. And of course, you point out, but you mandated it and they didn't do it. So that doesn't argue for the mandate. In fact, that argues against the mandate. And it, it creates a situation, too, in which everything is up to the politicians. If they had less narcissism and a little more judgment, they would have understood it'd be better to leave it up to businesses. Because you're going to get mad at the business. Look, we've got people who don't want to come unless everyone's masked. We're going to require masks. That's the way it is. Or they don't. Or maybe they say, we're going to let everybody in. You don't want to shop here. You don't shop here. But it would have created a situation, I think, very quickly that if nine out of 10 businesses were doing it one way, the other 10% might, you know, of course, they might cut against the grain. But again, it's all choice. It's all people doing what they want to do. And I think what we're going to find out at the end of this, if, if we're allowed to speak and study and debate any of it, is that these measures had very little, if any, effect at all. I mean, and I'm not talking about the vaccine. I think the vaccine will have an effect, but I'm not sure what its effect is going to be. And I'm not sure that even without the vaccine, that we couldn't have handled COVID in a lot smarter ways and with less destruction in society. Well, certainly the experience of Kerala and Uttar Pradesh in India show that there's a difference between the American way where you make ivermectin, you, you downplay that or make it illegal like they did in Kerala and push remdesivir and vaccines. And then in Uttar Pradesh, they gave out ivermectin and uh, some vitamins in $3 packages. And Uttar Pradesh uh, has great COVID results and Kerala has the worst COVID re results in India. So there's, there's little natural experiments that happen from state to state that show, I think, that there are better ways of doing things. I'm very interested in all that, but my biggest fear right now is that, remember that great essay by uh, William Graham Sumner, The Conquest of the United States by Spain, in which he argued that the conquest of Spain by the United States during the Spanish-American War was really a triumph of Spain, Spaniard kind of thinking in America. And so we lost. I'm thinking that without China ever firing a shot, China wins because we become China. And that's the thing I don't want to be. <laughs> you talk about this could be a bioweapon that China did. We could be at war. We don't know that. And so I, I step back from that and in that, yeah, it could be, but a lot of things could be. What we do know is that the biggest problem the West has is that our elites want to be China. And the truth is whether COVID-19 came from a, a lab accident or purposeful uh, military experiment, you know, uh, what do you call it, a 
a uh, bioweapon. We don't know. It doesn't really change the fact that China is at war with the United States, is at war with any sort of international system that allows democratic controls of governments by people. They hate that idea. It's not happened in China and it's not going to. And in essence, China runs its society. It's the CCP has control over Chinese society because they will kill millions of people if they need to do so. But they have that control. The Chinese Communist Party is 90 million people out of 1.4 billion. So it's a very tiny elite controlling the society. And I think that there's a tiny elite that would like to control our society. And I think that they don't find China. I mean, Bloomberg, the former New York City mayor and and, uh, presidential candidate for about 14 seconds, he was all about we have to work with China and, and, you know, they see this as all it's all we're just doing business with China. These people, they are smart. They are not wise. And we need people with a little bit of wisdom in political positions because that's the way we were all headed, uh, I think. And, and it's one of the things that I think Trump did that nobody else probably would have done. There's such a push You know, if you're working in the State Department, if you're a politician dealing with foreign policy, the number one people who are going to be coming up to you who want something, foreign affairs, are wanting to do business. They want to make money in China. And for the most part, look, let's not get too upset about this. This deal could make me a billion dollars. I mean, look at how the NBA acted. And they're hardly alone. There was just something... uh, the other day that I guess LinkedIn now is encouraging people to censor their profiles on LinkedIn so that the Chinese won't censor them. And I say, let the Chinese censor them, but don't self-censor. That's where everything is headed. And all of a sudden, this pandemic, Trump's trade arguments with China. And then I think it got to enough discussion that people started to hear about the Uyghurs enough People don't know about Falun Gong. They don't know about organ harvesting of prisoners of conscience. They don't know a lot about what has the horrors of the Chinese regime, but they've woken up. And that's been that's been a wonderful thing. That's, I guess, my biggest fear is that on so many levels, we just go through the motions and my biggest, uh, I guess, the, the one thing that I see most heartening in politics today is that when it comes to policy on China, there's been almost no change from the Trump policies to the Biden policies. And of course, Biden and Hunter, there's all kinds of connections, there's always all kinds of worries. But I kind of see those as that may create some pressure on Biden that he better not you know, we better not sell out because people will be watching very closely. On all of that, I heard Joe Manchin say on television this morning, and he's voting against the big spending thing. He's the Democratic senator from West Virginia, which is a clearly Republican state. And he said, he said today, he said, I don't know who thought I ever was a liberal. I've never been one. He's always, I guess, been a Democrat, but not a, a liberal Democrat. Anyway, he said, Look, and I'm paraphrasing because I won't get it exactly right, but we 
can't help people if the people who can do for themselves don't do for themselves. In other words, if we can't have a reward economy where people can go out and create their own rewards, we don't have the ability to help the people who can't quite make it. And I think there's a lot of just common sense in that. This idea that we're going to pay everybody's college. Well, if you're going to college and you like someone to pick up the bill, it sounds kind of good. But it'd be another payoff kind of this going to the wealthier folks. Look, if you want to go to college, go to college. I'd be for a government that stopped pushing the prices sky high. But other than, than getting out of the way, don't pay for everything. You know, you and I looked years ago at uh, universal basic income because we got interested about it and we did several scripts on it. And in the end, it just is the wrong, the wrong message to send people that there is a big, big brother government somewhere. Don't you worry, because every month, every month, this big brother government is going to take care of you. I don't want to tell people that. I mean, I think we have a problem making it too nice now. I think we and I think we need to say to people, we need you to step up. We don't have any secret, you know, we don't have a bunch of secret funders. We don't have some great workforce and great military force of like drones somewhere. We need people to step up. Now, when you think of military, they probably do need a lot more drones. But anyway. It's all about us, and we don't hear that very often. On that note, did you look at the thought for today? I did not. Okay, let's see if I can find that. Ludwig von Mises to Ayn Rand. It's a letter he wrote to Ayn Rand, a fan letter when she wrote Atlas Shrugged. And this is, this is quite a quote. He says to Ayn Rand, you have the courage to tell the masses what no politician told them. You are inferior, and all the improvements in your condition, which you simply take for granted, you owe to the effort of men who are better than you. If this be arrogance, as some of your critics observed, it is still the truth that had to be said in the age of the welfare state. <laughs> and that's, that's the harshest truth to say. Of course, most, of, most people who are working are contributing something, but certainly the advances in the world do not come from a worker on the line. That's not, the, that's not where it comes from, really. It comes from entrepreneurs and inventors. Yes, and not totally, because if they didn't have that access to labor, it's like uh, years ago, I remember Rush Limbaugh trying to explain how critical it is for people to put their capital into a business and start it and, and create that institution that then hires people. As a, and he's absolutely right. But it was almost like, so you owe them something. And I thought, no, 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 no. It's, 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 it's wonderful what they're doing. Wonderful, wonderful. But the second I owe them anything for it, then all of a sudden, don't do it. What no one owes is a free ride. And the poor have been told, the working class has been told over and over again, you deserve more. And we're going to give you more and we're going to take it from the rich. Yes. And yes. that's what Ayn Rand was fighting against. And that's what Ludwig von Mises was talking about. You hear it all the time against rich people. And it's like my experience with rich people is on almost every level you can think of, every positive indicator, 
they score higher. It's like because they're focused people, they're conscientious people, they're hardworking people. You know, you might personality like them more or less than someone else, but they have all these traits. You meet them and you realize after talking to them for 30 minutes, it's not an accident that they're doing pretty well in life. And they're not being carried in by folks on pillows and I remember uh, someone telling a, a friend of mine who was a, a donor to efforts that he didn't think something was prudent or something. And, and the donor said, look, look, if I were prudent, I would like be sipping champagne in the French Riviera. I'm trying to get, you know, I'm trying to change the world. These are people who are doing a lot and should be thanked, should be appreciated and they're constantly mocked as if they are the problem. You know, that's uh, our Friday piece, Biden blames business. There's so much going in that direction, the anti-rich direction, that I think people just fall into it. It's kind of like the years ago, you'd, you'd hear, oh, you know, Congress was full of white men. Well, the problem wasn't so much that there were white men in Congress. It was that Congress was completely calcified and that there was no change. And so, of course, it was going to be white men because there were no open seats for women or any people of color to run for. And of course, as that's happened, it's it's open as there have been more open seats. It certainly has changed the complexion of Congress. Look, you just stumbled into the other piece you wrote this week, The Age of the Octogenarians. That's true. It's almost as if you planned it. Yes, I didn't, but it's it, but let's pretend I did. Charles Grassley, Chuck, as I'll call him, I don't know him, has been in Congress for a long time. He's been in public office for the last 59 years, 12 as a state legislator. What was it? Six, I think, or eight as a uh, House of Representatives, a, a congressman, and then 41 going on 42 as a U.S. senator. And I'm not beating him up in this piece. I'm not praising him as a wonderful guy. He does seem to be in in pretty good shape. No one complains that he doesn't have his faculties. He's 88 years old. He's not the oldest in Congress. He's the third oldest in Congress. All, All three are 88. But the point so often is made, he's awfully old. He's 88 years old. He he gets elected and serves out his term. He'll be 89 when he's elected. He'll be 95 when his term ends. And and that's pretty seriously old. And you wonder, is he going to have all his faculties? But he seems to have them now. And if he's a diligent person and he feels like he's losing them, he could always step down. My problem is not with his age. My problem is with the fact that he has held the seat for 41 years in the, the same seat in the same institution, and that he's been nothing but a politician. And I'm not putting down being a politician so much as putting down being that one thing, because being a good politician is representing people, which means having a very wide field of knowledge and interests and information. And so it seems funny to sit in that same field for a long time, because you want people coming in and out of it. And that the problem is we need term limits so that no one can hold that office that long. If this was his first term and he's 88 and he seems pretty spry on the campaign trail, 
I hope he wins. The other interesting thing with this piece is that the Washington Post mentioned in their article about him announcing he was going to run for re-election that it removed it as a competitive seat. That being an incumbent, if he runs for re-election, they're almost you know, guaranteed the seat. And Iowa tends to lean more Republican, although it is one of the, you know, like 15 or 10, you know, most competitive states, but only about five or six of those are competitive, uh, really. I think it's an interesting thing for us to think about because we see our Congress getting older and older and older. And we see people like Strom Thurmond, who was in, he was 100 years old in the U.S. Senate. And he wasn't serving. As I point out in this piece, that was not a pretty situation. You couldn't say he was serving. He was being served. He, it was like, you know, Congress as, as a medical ward kind of, and, and that's silly. And why do you have that situation? Well, you don't have that situation when you've got competitive seats. You don't have that situation when you've got term limits because they're just not going to stay and stay and, and have that. And so I wanted to be clear that, the problem with Grassley running for re-election is that he's been there too long. And frankly, if I were in Iowa, I don't think I'd be voting for the Democrat because the Democrat who, uh, you know, the one who's running, who I know of, I can't think of her name at the moment, but uh, she lost a, a House seat this last election. But the front running Democrat against him, if it's her first day, she's not going to be she's not going to be who I want in there. So it's why you need things like term limits. But I encourage people to uh, go read The Age of Octogenarians, and we need term limits and a lot of other things. The ability to debate would be a good thing. Well, that all sounds very democratic. And uh, with that, I think we probably have to end the podcast. Cool. This has been This Week of Common Sense for the last week of September 2021, which is aiming to launch on... October 1st, 2021. Thanks for joining us. And meet us at thisiscommonsense.org.